Packers Daily with Jason Martinez. All right, Monday, March 22nd edition of Flyers Daily with Jason Martinez. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Hope everybody's having a great Monday. Mondays tend to suck. Weather's getting a little better. Eh, This time of year with better weather and warmer weather always meant playoffs. The playoffs are here. Going to the block parties uh, for playoff hockey. It's one of those kind of memories you have uh, of some of the great runs. Is this team poised for a run? Well, they're going to have to snap to it. And they're going to have to get their act together because the erratic play of the month of March is not going to cut it. Obviously, the loss on Saturday evening to the New York Islanders, just another brutal loss, 6-1. And the Islanders just kind of had their way with the Flyers in that game once again. So sandwiched in between there was the win over the Islanders, 4-3, between a 9 nothing loss and a 6-1 loss. And the Flyers haven't won back-to-back games in the month of March, in a month where They're going to play a total of 17 games. We're inching closer and closer to the trade deadline. And uh, what Chuck Fletcher is going to do is going to be incredibly interesting. Is he going to push some organizational equity into the middle of the table and do everything he can to help this team now? Is he going to play the long game? Uh, Is he going to make uh, substantial moves or just some remedial moves? We don't know. Frankly, we don't know what the entire trade market is going to look like around the NHL. The considerations of a flat cap, also with an expansion draft looming, complicate things for sure. Um, But I think what we do know, what we have learned to this point, through 29 games, the Flyers have played one game into the second half of the season. 28's the midway point. They've played one beyond that. I think what we do know right now is some of the answers, some of the questions that need to be answered can't be answered with what they have. And that's obviously pointed towards the defense. Elaine Vigneault and the coaching staff have tried just about every combination and then some uh, with his defense and scratching guys, including Phil Myers, who is the top four D-man for the team, Shane Gossespair, Eric Gustin in and out of the lineup, Robert Haig when he was healthy, so on and so forth. Nate Prosser is another one that I would imagine is probably not going to be in the lineup last tonight based on the the game that he had uh, on Saturday night against the Islanders. But all said and done, they've tried all these different things, and it doesn't seem to be working. So the only solution seemingly to that problem is for an acquisition. And there's guys out there, you know, we've we've talked about Matthias Ekholm. The, the price is exorbitant. He seems to be the kind of the prize guy to be acquired uh, at the trade deadline or before the trade deadline. He's kind of the cream of the crop right now. Taylor Hall probably in that conversation as well, even though he's got a no move, which he'll, I'm sure he'll waive. But Matthias Ekholm is going to command a very nice return. Reports are saying a first-round pick, maybe a second-round pick the, the following year, and a top prospect or a first-round pick, and two prospects. They're kind of equating it to the Jake Muzzin deal that happened uh, last year or two years ago. So the market is kind of set there for a guy like Matthias Ekholm, and with that expansion draft and a year remaining on his contract, you could lose him after giving up all of that. Um, There's some other guys out there. There's other names available. You can look at a guy like David Savard, who is a right shot. He's not as good of a player as Matthias Ekholm, but he's a gamer. He's in the final year of his contract uh, with the Columbus Blue Jackets. He's a right shot. 
He can play the minutes. He can play the role. Again, he's not as good of a player. He's not a guy like Ekholm that you can slide onto your power play. But he does fit a couple boxes that Ekholm doesn't. Number one, the price will not be as high. So you won't give up as much to get him. He is a right shot for your right shot, left shot, which this coaching staff likes and which they employed last year when they had Matt Niskanen. Uh, He also has an expiring contract. So it doesn't have a looming effect on expansion. So there's some areas there that you would have to consider. And I think David Savard would absolutely help this team to the same level as Matthias Ekholm, who's a fit but not a perfect fit. Maybe not. But you have to figure out where you are, which, what organizational equity you're willing to part with to better your team this year. And really the big thing, too, is obviously Carter Hart is struggling right now. Um, he's got his environment has not been great. What in front, what is in front of him has been faulty and flawed, and it's hard for a goalie to regain his confidence and get out of a, a rut like he's in right now without having stability around you and without having structure D around you. It would also help him. It helps the defense. It helps the team if you're to acquire an Ekholm, a David Savard, or someone else but it really helps your goaltender as well because the grade A chances that he's seeing night in and night out, I've called the defensive breakdowns extraordinary, extravagant. They're unbelievable. They're not just a small breakdown and a guy got inside position. It's two guys behind everybody. You know, those kind of things. They're explosive breakdowns that make it near impossible to make saves a lot of times. And when you have a goaltender that is fighting it to make to make saves on, on the puck, pucks he should, and you have those kind of breakdowns, it, it bleeds. They bleed together. So it complicates the situation. But here's what's coming up in this episode. We're going to do some Twitter questions first, and then we're going to get to a conversation that I was able to have with uh, Caleb Dahlgren. He was a member of the Humboldt Broncos, and he's written a book, and his story of perseverance, loss, Hockey, life, everything is fascinating. And I think he's perfect to have on today because we could all use a little perspective. Sports, when when things don't go right, we get mad, we get upset, we're invested, and we put a lot into it. Emotion, you know, money, time. We invest a lot into this. So it it means something to us. The Flyers mean something to all of us. If you're listening, I know it means something to you. But Caleb Dahlgren and what he went through with the tragedy that happened back in 2017 for the Humboldt Broncos on the way to a game and the loss of 16 teammates, staff members, and his approach to life now is fascinating and it's inspiring. So we'll get to Caleb Dahlgren in just a couple of moments, but let's answer some Twitter questions. And and the tweet I put out, I just said, Uh, last night, I said, okay, everyone's had a beautiful Sunday to calm down after another brutal loss, the 6-1 loss to the Isles. I said, so let's get some rational, not emotional questions in for tomorrow's Flyers Daily episode before another game tomorrow night versus the Isles. Post them here and I'll get to a bunch, I promise. So let's get to them. John Morrison starts us off. He said, are there players in Lehigh Valley that could provide a spark by adding some speed and physicality to the lineup? If no, what hockey trade can be made that will bring some, quote, life to the team and the room 
Right now, this team looks moribund. That's a good word. Moribund's a good word to describe it. Uh, I, I don't know that there's any players there. I mean, at some point, maybe, I mean, Tanner Lashinsky's playing really well right now. Uh, a guy like Wade Allison, who's, you know, just back from injury and starting to play, if he really gets off and is playing well, that could be a consideration. I always think young players provide a fresh new perspective and they have an energy about them. And I think that it's infectious. So if there are some players down there like Tanner Lashinsky, like Wade Allison, that can really get going, uh, that could be an option. As far as a trade that can be made, a hockey trade is the way you termed it. Um, hockey trades are more off-season moves, you know, player-for-player player type trades where one team's getting a player that fills the need that they want and you're getting a player that fills the need you want and the, and the player you send away is redundant in some way. So I think that's more of an off-season type thing. I think trades at this time of year are going to be more teams looking to garner assets, garner draft picks, and shed cat. And there's going to be some teams, like there's some reporting out there that the Chicago Blackhawks are willing to take on cap and and for, to take it on for teams, to give teams some relief cap-wise. It comes at a price, and that's going to be you know, assets and prospects, young players that aren't making much money. So there are going to be teams like the Blackhawks that are going to be open for business to help cap-strap teams get be able to make some moves and add money by sending some money there. But it's going to come at a price. You're going to lose uh, organizational depth. You're going to lose prospects. You're going to lose draft picks. Uh, let's go to CSO-esque. I guess that's Esquire. He said, bigger problem. And he gives me three different options. Coaching, A, coaching, B, talent, C, Chuck Fletcher. Then he says, everyone except Farabee has regressed and they look lost. So that points to coaching. He said, they also look unmotivated and making awful mistakes, which is on the players. And Fletcher has done nothing to improve the team. Um, Chuck Fletcher, he's made one signature move since he's been the GM. Obviously, that was Kevin Hayes in the contract that he brought him on. But uh, hasn't made a bunch of moves. And look, over the last calendar year, obviously with the pandemic, with the flat cap, and an expansion draft, it's difficult. Chuck Fletcher's not the only GM not making moves. There's 30 other ones for the most part. G- GMs aren't active right now because there's a lot of variables here with a flat cap again next year and you know getting cap compliant. And, you ha- and Chuck Fletcher can't just look at the remainder of this season and next season. He's also got to look at when Carter Hart's contract comes up, when Sean Couturier's deal ends. Uh, you know, players like that, Travis Sanheim. I know these players aren't playing well right now, but Travis Sanheim, when his... Uh, bridge deal ends and, and how, how that's going to affect the cap and a flat cap and how long is the flat cap going to be. Uh, coaching, uh, is it, you're asking if that's a problem. Uh, I mean, I, don't, I can't see it coaching being a problem because I, this coaching staff knows how to coach. They didn't forget how to coach during the, during the offseason. They're telling these players what to do. The players haven't been able to execute it. So when I, when I look at it, I go, okay, what's the problem? I think you have an issue where you have some players that they were counting on to take a step up haven't taken a step up, in, in most ways have taken a step back, but were counted on for a role that was bigger than it was last year. And it looks like some of those players aren't ready for that role. It's, it's what I talk about when I talk about slotting. Losing Matt Niskanen slotted the defense differently. And that's, you see guys that rotation to play alongside Ivan Provorov. That's the biggest concern. That's the biggest need. If you can solve that need in a very good way with a guy like Ekholm, then you have a situation where 
Uh, everybody all of a sudden slots differently. Matchups are different, and it's more favorable for guys that aren't ready to take on the top players in the NHL, shift in and shift out. Uh, Tim Tobin tweets in and says, if 14 is out for an extended period of time, that's Sean Couturier. Do you find a rental center to push for the playoffs? I say no, just curious on your thoughts. That's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, Sean Couturier means so much to this team. If you lose Couturier, and I don't know the status, this, when you guys hear this, there may be some resolution to it. But as I'm taping here, if if you're without Sean Couturier, you're in a real bad spot. You're you're already chasing it, and you're in a real bad spot because we talked about it when he was out earlier in the season. He checks so many boxes. He's your top-line center. He's basically a point-per-game player. He's a guy that shuts down the opposition's top line, outscores them. He's a penalty killer, a power play guy, and one of the best face-off guys in the league. That's a hard thing to fill. It really is. So uh, how Chuck Fletcher would deal with that would be, look, we hope it doesn't happen. We hope Coots is okay and he's able to get back out there. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, and again, maybe when you hear this, we have that answer. Uh, Todd tweets in, Todd Shannon, he says, not that he'd be the savior, but why not Sam Moran at this point? Would bring an element they're missing and couldn't be worse than Prosser, Gus, etc. That's a good question. I mean, I mean, they tried Sam at the wing because there wasn't enough room defensively for him. But he does bring uh, the one thing that you're saying that he, they're missing is physicality, presence, accountability, because he is a big man and a big strong man. Um, could he be worse than Prosser, Gus, etc.? Yes. He hasn't played a lot of hockey. He's on reconstructed knees, so he could be. But when you've tried all else and it hasn't worked, maybe it is time to give Sam Moran a shot at defense with the big club. John uh, Steyert, I hope I said your last name right, John. Uh, he said, hey, Jason, assuming the Flyers don't climb out of their mire, what's the best course of action for this season? Personally, I'm not eager to make moves for 2021 when big, big moves can be made, maybe needed to right the ship. I'm really curious to see what Chuck does over the next six months. I am too. And that's the million-dollar question. What can you accomplish in season by April 12th, and what can you accomplish in the summer? You can accomplish far more in the summer, I believe. There's a lot more wheeling and dealing that can be done, especially with certainty about the cap. If It's going to be flat next year, but we'll also know about the, the entire revenue situation with the, the TV contract element that's still out there, which affects HRR and the, and the salary cap and when it may rise. So you may have more data to make better decisions in the offseason if you're looking to do something substantial. Let's go to Mike Beeman. He says, what has been the major difference between how the team played during the last season pre-COVID and since the playoffs last season, the regular season so far this season? That sounded really confusing, didn't it? Uh, he sees, says, seems like a different team since the original pause. Uh, you're right. A big part of that's Matt Niskanen and what he brought. I mean, again, I, I've talked about it. Matt Niskanen was a really good player and a really perfect fit. <laughs> He wasn't an elite defenseman in the NHL, but the fit was perfect. And again, it slotted everybody correctly. That's a big difference. And I don't know. You don't have a lot of practice time. It's been a disjointed season for the Flyers with their COVID pause, and they're not the only team that's dealt with it. A lot of teams have. A lot of teams have dealt with it in different ways as well. I mean, look at Buffalo. They're not a good team, so it's hard to judge, but they've been an absolute disaster since their COVID situation. Same with New Jersey. They're starting to get their legs a little bit now. So uh, it, it's different. It, look, I think the messaging from the coaching staff has been the same. The execution has not been there. 
And that's something that needs to return. And for that to return, you're likely going to need to be able to grab uh, somebody in the trade market. Jack B with a very interesting question. I'm glad you asked this, Jack. Great job. He said, if there was one defenseman currently in the NHL they could add to be Provorov's partner for the next seven to 10 years, who would it be and what would it cost to get him? That Usually I would look at that question and go, oh, dude, I can't think that far in advance. That boggles my mind. But I actually have an answer. If there was one defenseman that's in the NHL right now that I would love to see alongside Ivan Provorov, it's Seth Jones. I'd love to see Seth Jones as a Philadelphia Flyer. Seth Jones is, he's 26 years old. He was the fourth overall pick back in 2013. Seth Jones has one more year on his contract next year for the 21-22 season. It's a $5.4 million cap hit, and then he's a UFA. You can sign him, if you traded for him, you could sign him this summer to an extension prior to the final year of his deal or any time during the final year of his deal. That's a, I mean, he's going to cost you a lot of money. But I always say, you cannot invest enough when you've got an absolute stud defenseman. That is what you want. First, you'd have to get him from Columbus now, before the deadline. You have him for the remainder of this season. Make him fall in love with your city. And this and the fans, you guys would love him. He's a great player. And matter of fact, his dad is actually on the coaching staff of the Sixers. Uh, but anyway, you get him this year. And then, you, and then you sign him to a monster extension. And you have two absolute stud demands. And that's a great top pair. That's the guy. That's the guy. Is it likely? I don't know. I mean, Columbus is going to do everything they can to keep him. But we'll see what happens. You never know. That's the guy. You asked the question. That's my answer. Brendan Gillespie says, Does these brutal losses accelerate Chuck's moves, if any, or is a postseason a series away from being out of grasp? Um I don't know that it accelerates it because it accelerates urgency. It creates more urgency because the further you get behind, the more you have to dig out. And when you're playing so many games in such a small period of of the calendar and you're struggling, I mean, you wait another two weeks and it's just going to be too late, right? So, it, but the people making the trades, the GMs that Chuck's talking to also know that. So they know they have a desperate man. So it's not a good position for Chuck Fletcher. He loses his hand because of urgency. Uh, and then you said, if any, or is a postseason a series away from being out of grasp? It's getting close. It, to me, it's getting close. I think it's a really tough situation now as we sit on the 22nd of March as I pull out my schedule. And the remainder of the month, obviously the Islanders game tonight, tomorrow against the New Jersey Devils at home, then two at home against the Rangers, and then two on the road against Buffalo. That could be what just what the doctor ordered to get them right. But if they get right, they got to stay right. Because when you start April, Islanders, one game, you have a lot of one games here. One game against the Islanders. Back-to-back games against the Boston Bruins, who they're 0-3-2 and against. Then the Islanders again on the road. Then you got Boston again. Then Buffalo. Then Washington, Pittsburgh on the road. Washington, uh, one with the Islanders, two with the Rangers, and then three with New Jersey to end the month. So if they're able to get it turned around in this stretch to the end of the month with some, I guess, weaker opponents, opponents that are below them in the standings in New Jersey, the Rangers, and Buffalo. Then they have to be up, they first have to get it turned around with consistency, feel good about the game, everybody get confident, and then also 
ride that into April against some of these other teams that you're battling for playoff position against. So it, it's a tough it's a tough putt right now. Bill Leonard tweets in. He says, hey, Jason, terrific podcast. Thank you, Bill. You're far too kind. He said, can we see Moran at D at a D-man position with the Flyers soon? Better than Prosser. And by the way, Oscar shouldn't have to drop his gloves. I already answered the, the Moran part, but uh, your part about Oscar dropping the gloves, totally agree. But I'm not surprised he did it. That's who Oscar is. Anything for the team. Rob McCormick tweets and he says, do you get tired of the endless, unrealistic trade scenarios people ask you about? <laughs> well, that's part of sports, though. That is, uh, that's one of the things about sports. It's, it's talking about trades. But a lot of times when, you know, when I'm on the radio or corresponding on Twitter, I have to remind people that there is a GM on the other end of that, and he's not going to take your trash bin for their gold. So uh, we tend to see it that way. Uh, Harry Doyle's burner account says, better catalog of music, not total albums. Pantera or Metallica? Dude, that's an impossible question. But the better catalog is Metallica. But I love Pantera. God, you're putting me to the, to the awful question. Anyway, uh, let's get... <laughs> I needed a break for a second there, and we got it. Phil tweets in and says, Is it time to decide we're going to be building around York, younger talent, instead of making free agency slash trades? No, it's not time for that. This is not a rebuild situation. It's just not. All right, we'll get to two more questions. Let's go to uh, at Philadelphia, at late lead, at Lead Farmer SD. He says, at 21, how does Farabee compare with Giroux at 21? Different players, but he's just so impressive this year. It's hard not to benchmark him with our best. That's a really interesting question. So Joel Farabee, yeah, he's 21 years of age right now. Uh, Claude Giroux, when he was 21, he only played 42 games that year. That He played two games when he was 20 years old um, in the 2007-8 season, came up and played 42 games, was called up and, and remained up around December uh, of that 08-09 season. That year he had nine goals, 18 assists, and 27 games. Now in Farabee's first year, uh, he had Farabee in his first season played 52 games, had eight goals, 13 assists, and 21 points. So that now Farabee was 19, Giroux was 20 or 21. Farabee is 20-21 now. And in 28 games, he has uh, 25 points. He's got 13 goals and 12 assists. And Giroux at uh, 21, I mean, he had, he had that 27 points, but really his second year in the NHL, if you want to kind of go by that, he played all 82, and he had 16 goals, 31 assists, 47 points. So he was about point, a half a point per game player. Over those two years, his first two years in the NHL, if you look at point percentage with games played, Giroux basically had... 0.6 points per game, 596, 0.596, 0.6 games per game. And Farabee's got 0.575 right now in his first now 80 games in the National Hockey League. Interesting question. Appreciate that one. Uh, all right, last one. Uh, Bbelt73 says, have we overvalued many of our prospects and young players? Really good question. You know, because we talk about so many guys as being untouchable. Oh, and you get to the expansion draft. You can't. You have to protect that guy. You have to protect this guy. He can't be included in a deal. Konechny, Sanheim, Myers, uh, you know, all of them. They still have good young players that are, are struggling right now. The team is struggling. When a team's not playing well, it's infectious, unfortunately. And that's, what I think, what you're saying. A team that is in a little bit of, just in a bit of a tailspin right now. But again, here, here's what I always, I truly believe this. Like that nine-game win streak last year, your team is not as good as as it is when it's at its best, and your team is not as bad as it is when it's at its worst. 
It's somewhere in between. This is a really rough patch right now in the month of March. They got to get out of it. Can they get out of it with what they have? That's the question. But as far as, look, some, some people don't think that the value of some of these prospects is that high. There are a lot of people that are obviously down right now on Travis Sanheim, Travis Konechny, who's actually been really good lately, uh, Phil Myers, and Ivan Provorov to some extent, Carter Hart. Do we overvalue them? I don't know. That's an individual thing. All right, let's get to my conversation with Caleb Dahlgren. This was an enlightening conversation that I know you're going to enjoy. And frankly, we all might need right now. Provide a little bit of perspective. And he was a part of a, a tragedy with the Humboldt Broncos. And many lives were lost. People next to him on that bus. He talks about that and more in his story of perseverance and courage. Here's my conversation with Caleb Dahlgren. Uh, joining us on this episode of Flyers Daily, real special episode, and I'm excited to have this conversation uh, with Caleb Dahlgren. Uh, he's got a book out right now called Crossroads, My Story of Tragedy and Resilience as a Humble Bronco. Caleb, how you doing? Doing good. Doing really good. Thanks for having me on here. I'm honored, honestly. This is so cool. Um, you're a Flyer fan. I am. I'm a big Bob, Flyers fan. Yeah, you're yeah. a Bob Clark fan because you guys both share the uh, diabetic uh, commonality. You bet. Yeah. So he, it was cool. He was my idol growing up. Um, I heard about him, but I never was able to really watch him play because his era was before me. So he was just kind of like this phenom guy who you heard of that was an NHL. That was an amazing player, captain. He could do it all. And that was, that's all I ever heard. And so I never really got to see him play, but uh, um, it was someone I could look up to. Um, you got to meet him since, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got to meet him. With him. Yeah, no, he's a great person too. He's absolutely unbelievable. And he actually wrote a little uh, review for the book too, that they put on the book. So it's pretty cool to have that connection with him. Uh, he's, he's honestly a, such a down earth person and unbelievable dude. Uh, amazing man. I, I can't say enough good things about him and his family. The Clark family has been unbelievable to me. Wow. That's, he's, he is a really, really simple guy. I, I remember doing talking to him not too long ago. And I called him up and said, Clarky, how you doing? He goes, oh, just 42 degrees here in Flin Flon. You know, just real chilled <laughs> out. It's all about hitting it straight on the golf course, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah all good, man. Um, you, now, you wrote the book. I, I want to talk to you about the book and about the process of writing a book. But but let's start kind of where you, where this story um, initially begins for you. Because it was April 6, 2018, and you were involved in, in the horrific accident as a member of the Humboldt Bronco junior team and. Yeah, so many lives were lost and and can, can you I know you don't remember the accident and, and you've gone through so much since then but but what is it you know here you're almost three years removed at this point um what have those three years been like for you yeah those three years have been uh definitely a range of emotions and resilience and hope but yeah it's definitely been hard too like I, I say there's no really easy answer for the three years but um, I could kind of take you back on what happened on April 6th and uh, explain my injuries. So I'll give you a little story here. Um, it was literally just a typical game day. And that's the, kind of the beauty, but not the beauty of it was it just was normal. Everything was normal. We just were had a back against the ball against the Nippon Hawks. They're down three to one, but we actually blew two leads in that series. So it could have been three to one for us. And uh, we we're just getting ready and prepped for the game. We knew what we had to do. We had to win. And so the guys were good. We were in an upbeat mood and we knew that we were going to take it to them. Like we, we had so much confidence in our group and we were so tight knit. And so uh, we left the city and 
guys are changing guys were having food uh playing cards joking around listening to music sitting on their phones having naps just the normal stuff you do on a bus and uh as we approached the intersection one of my teammates in front of me made a joke and we all started laughing so i uh, was sitting in the aisle seat at the time and i put on my headphones and turn up my music loud. So I was like, can you focus up and get in the zone? So I put my head down and then that was the last thing I remember. Everything else went black. And for, I guess, four days, I have post-traumatic amnesia it's called. And that is where you're completely unable to remember anything, but you're still able to like be like aware of who is there, but you just have no recollection. It's considered like a blackout. I've never been blacked out, drunk or whatever. But that's what it's considered to be. So like, you're still there, you're still doing your stuff, but you don't remember it whatsoever. And so for me, I was conscious on the scene and I did not remember that whatsoever either. Um, my first responder had to tell me about that and uh, got taken to the Nippon hospital. And then after that was air transported to the University of Saskatchewan hospital, uh, Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon. And after that, I spent, like I said, the four days there and didn't know really what happened or couldn't even, I knew what happened, but I didn't know what happened because I actually came to realization of it was fourth day after on April 11th. And so for me, it was a really difficult time. I suffered a puncture, well, I suffered a fractured skull, puncture wound to my skull. I suffered a scalp degloving, uh, traumatic brain injury, broken neck, broken back, blood clots, um, and nerve and ligament damage, muscle damage. And the worst part of it all was not the injuries. I'm not gonna lie, that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was losing 16 people who I consider to be family. I mean, you're with them all day, every day, and you have that bond. And I really do consider my teammates and my staff and organization as family, and they were family. So that was the hardest part by far. How do you kind of wrap your brain around that when you realize what happened and, and you're you know, you're really aware of not only what happened to you, but what happened to your family. And a hockey team is a family. Like, if people that listen to this, are I talk about it all the time. The greatest part of this game has nothing to do with what happens on the ice. Mm-hmm. It, the greatest part of the game is the person that it shapes you into being, the brotherhood of the guy sitting next to you, the the staff and all of those people um, because a lot of guys aren't going to go on to play pro hockey and make a career out of it, but you can still get a ton from the game. And it's why I'm still in the game now as a coach, because I want to give back to the game that gave me so much in the way that it shaped me as a person. So what is that moment like when you have that realization that you just lost a lot of, a lot of people that meant a ton to you? Yeah, it didn't really hit me. So I got told in the afternoon, I woke up from a nap. That was when it kind of all clicked and I kind of came back to myself and they told me that I had physiotherapy coming up in the next five minutes. So it really didn't sit with me. I didn't really understand everything. I still had questions. Um, came back and it was just a really busy day. And then in the evening, it was like the first time I just sat alone with myself and I thought about it. And I actually went on my phone and I started like looking through social media. And of course you saw like prayers for Humboldt, Humboldt Strong. You saw people putting their sticks on porches for us. It was just it was unbelievable. And that was like when it really hit me, the seriousness and the gravity of the whole situation just came on to me. And I went to text my roommate, uh, Stephen Wack, and I realized that he wasn't here anymore. And so I had a message all sent up, ready to type and send it. And then I was like, oh, he's not going to receive that. And that was like when it really hit me was that 
he was just one of the 16 too. And that there's 16 others that aren't here that won't ever receive that text either. And so that was hard. I, I definitely felt a little bit of guilt at the start. Like, why was I here and why were others not? It's survivor's guilt, right? For sure. There's people behind me that passed away. Person behind me, my roommate passed behind me, passed away. Behind him passed away. Beside me passed away. Kitty corner me passed away. It just didn't make sense. It, and the person in front of me was alive and he survived. And then like person kitty corner to me, he survived, but behind him, he passed away. So there's just, no rhyme or reason why, but I think looking back, I think some of the guys were changing. I think that was part of the reason why in the back of the bus, why some of the people might have passed away is because they're changing and standing up. So like when you do, we, we wear like track suits on the road. And then as we get close to arena, we change into our actual game suits yeah. and to look good. And so that was, I think part of the reason for that um, devastation, I guess. And yeah, it's hard to wrap your head around it and you'll never really find why. And uh, that's what I quickly learned in hospitals that there's no rhyme or reason. I'll never find why I have to accept it. I live my life to the fullest for ones who aren't here. Uh, it's God, so glad you said that. It's so, it's so well said. Um, and I imagine that survivor's guilt is very real. Um, but you have to move forward to honor those people. Writing the book, first of all, what made you to decide to write it? Well, it's a long story, but uh, I'll try to make it a little condensed. So, I started doing speaking engagements in 2019. I had my first one in like early 2019. And I had done speaking engagements before, but it was for diabetes. I'm an advocate for type one diabetic research and to help find a cure for type one diabetes since I'm a diabetic myself. And uh, I had done like previous speeches with that and I was completely cool with that situation, but to actually kind of tell my life story Cause I have had a lot of situations in my life before the crash. It wasn't just a crash that uh, changed me as a person. There was lots before that. And so I kind of told my story about how I was diabetic and how I also lost my personal trainer. I lost a teammate at a young age and I almost lost my dad when I was 16 and how that really molded me to the person and then led into the accident as well. So a lot of people were like, Holy, that's, you have a lot to tell here. So after one of my, my first speech, the person came out to me is like, you're going to write a book. I laughed. I was like, no, no, I'm not like, that's, that's ridiculous. And he was like, no, no, like you will just wait. And I was like, no, no, it's good. I didn't have any intention whatsoever. Fast forward to a couple more speeches and people kept on saying the same thing. Like your story really resonated with me. I'd have people tell me like, I literally saved their life. Like my story literally saved their life. Or oh, someone would say like, Hey, like I was in a very dark space. And now that you've talked and I've heard more about you, I'm, I'm way better. Like what I'm going through is nothing. And so like, yeah, it's all perspective and what people take in. And so for me, that was one of the big things was at every single one, there's people that saying, you better write a book. You need to write a book. And so I talked to my agent at the time. I was like, is this even like a thing? Should I be thinking about this? He's like, well, it's up to you. Like you don't need to do it if you don't want to. He says, definitely. Like if you did want to do it, I'm sure somebody would be interested and it would help other people. I said, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't think I need to do that. I don't want to do it. So later on, um, I ended up getting an offer sent to me to do a book. And that was kind of where it took off. I, I actually turned it away. And uh, fast forward a bit, I talked to lots of people. But at the end of the day, I was just sitting in class in my lecture. And uh, my professor said, if you want to make a change in the world, it starts with you. And that just really hit home because that's all I've ever wanted to do is make a positive impact. Yeah. And so I ended up accepting the deal after I talked to family and friends and uh, yeah, we went on from there. 
what was the process like? I imagine that, you know, you dredge up a lot and you, mm. you visit places that even though it's healthy to, to visit them in, in your mind's eye, um, they're hard places to go. So I imagine writing the book, there was probably some really difficult moments through the interview process that working with the writer that you worked with. Um, but I imagine all said and done, it was probably pretty cathartic. Yeah, you're completely right. At the start, it was definitely challenging because I had to relive everything I've dealt with in my life and to face it head on too. It wasn't just like, oh, we're going to push around that a little bit. Like, no, I was, we're going to dive deep and I wanted the book to be raw and I wanted to have an impact on anyone who read it. Hopefully it does. Um, but I just wanted to really connect with the reader because I am a real person. We are all real people too. And I really wanted to connect with them and hopefully take them on my journey throughout life. And then they leave the book feeling accomplished that they read it and that they take something away from it, even if it's a funny joke or something that was ridiculous that they thought was <laughs> made no sense. As long as they take something away from it, I think that's pretty unique and special. And so to go through this process, it was hard. Like I, I had to talk about right after the crash, how I felt about everything. Um, I had to talk about, I even made a tribute chapter, chapter 16, because I wanted to honor the 16 who aren't here. And that was by far the hardest chapter I had to ever write in my life. Uh, and hopefully it is the hardest chapter I'll ever have to write because I don't want to have to do that again. And so for me, that was an emotional time. But then I was also able to see how much support I've received and just the amount of people who've been in my corner throughout my life and throughout these crossroads that I've faced. And so it's such a beautiful concept to think of that I have so much support and really like truly I'm grateful for it. I was blessed with a great family. I was blessed with so many great people in my life. And so I've surrounded myself with good people and it's definitely shown through in me and making me the person I am today. So like you said, it was very cathartic too. I bet. Um, you know, the, the sticks out for Humboldt thing, um, that just wasn't a Canadian thing that made its way here all the way to Philadelphia because we put the sticks out. Yeah, me and my son did it, and they were on our front porch for a while. We left two out of the back porch as well. There was a goalie twig in there as well, of course. Um, but, but you know, we did it here. I mean, it this was an enormous story um, of tragedy and just unbearable loss with, you know, so many young hockey players and, and people, and there's so many stories to tell. Uh, when you look back, uh, do you miss the game just a tremendous amount playing it? Yeah, I definitely – yeah, like I'm actually, I'm with York University men's hockey program in Canada here. We're playing U sports, which is like the division one of Canada. I say we play against division one teams. We actually played Niagara University. We beat them five to two in exhibition, but it was their first game and it was our second game. So it would have, would have had a little bit of advantage there. But uh, anyways, I think that having that team aspect is so critical. And for me, right after the crash, uh, I had a previous verbal commitment to York University. And then after the crash, they still offered me a spot. And I wanted to be there so badly in that September of uh, 2018. And I was able to recover and get back on the ice and be with the team practicing by September. And so I think that was like very, very amazing an accomplishment in my life. But uh, to have that team aspect is something that you can't, can't recreate. And I, I really wanted that. And I even went there and I said, hey, like, I know my past. I know you guys know who I am, but treat me like a York University Lion, not the humble Bronco. And they did. And that was the best so thing. So you were able to play. Yeah, I didn't play. I didn't play a game yet. So I haven't been cleared for contact. And that's the only mm -hmm. issue because my brain injury. 
And yeah. so I do sit in the stands and it is hard because when you have something you're so passionate about get ripped away without you going on your terms, it's difficult to comprehend. Uh-huh. It is. Yeah. And so for me, it was hard, but I knew that I could be a leader off the ice. And I knew that I didn't have to play a game, two games on the weekend to be that leader in the whole week leading up to those games. I could still be a leader doing everything I did that full week off the ice, how I handled myself with school, hockey, relationships, how I carried myself as a person with my values. And so I knew that I could still be a leader like I had been my whole entire career, but it's just a little difficult not being in those games when you wish you could be. Yeah, I imagine you're, but, but, you know, being in the room, being in practices, that's part of the team. That's an element that you still are part of that team. And that's awesome to hear, man. I'm I'm so glad that you're able to do that. And, um, you know, what do you want to do long-term? You know, I mean, you've been probably since the moment that happened back in 2018, I'm sure everything's been, been about what's right in front of you, right? Just trying to get through the next day and, and trying to, you know, honor the people that, that you lost and, and, and living life in a very small, narrow window. But what's, what's long-term? Do you want to be in the game long-term? Yeah, well, long-term, I actually, I'm a dreamer. So I wasn't really in that small, narrow window. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a chiropractor at a young age. And I thought that if I could go to school and get a degree and then go play professionally hockey in Europe and then come back after and become a chiropractor or physiotherapist, uh, something in the medical field, I was thinking that was probably the route or even a teacher. Um, but it really hit my like radar 100% when I was 13 about being a chiropractor. Um, and now today I'm still really passionate about it. And now I can't, I'm not able to play professional hockey in Europe, but uh, hopefully I can become a chiropractor a little bit earlier now. And uh, that's my goal right now. So I'm in an application process to be a chiropractor and I want to specialize with athletes in the I want to get my specialization in Canada. There's a two years uh, post doctorate. And after that, I'd like to work with a professional uh, team. So hopefully the Flyers, that'd be cool. Uh, just throwing that plug out there for anyone who's listening. <laughs> but yeah. uh, no, I just really think I always want to work with athletes. I, I know how we operate and it's different than other people. And I can really relate to them. And I want to be a part of that team environment still. Yeah, you know, the the, the pressure points in a body that that – a hockey player deals with, you know, the hips are always an area, the knees and, and, you know, certain areas of the body take a little bit different of a beating. That's why hockey players don't have any calf muscles. You don't need calf muscles in hockey, right? Not, not really. I mean, a little bit got huge quads and butts, but no calves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. I, yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> um, let me ask you about, uh, you know, in college and everything like that, do, do people know your story? Is it hard for them to treat treat you normal yeah so for me that was the hardest part was actually in saskatchewan i, I couldn't walk around i literally like, i couldn't leave the public you felt like you had a poster uh, board on didn't oh, you oh 100 and my hair was dyed and i couldn't change the color of the dye because i had like the degloving on this whole side of my head so it was like scalped and so i couldn't actually dye my hair back to different colors so i just let it grow so like if i walked around town anybody knew me and they knew that i was a bronco because my hair they knew me because they saw me on TV or whatever. And so that was hard. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to Toronto. Won't get recognized too much. It's Toronto. It's a way different city. So I ended up going there. And the first day on campus, I got recognized by like three people. I was like, oh my goodness. And when they do recognize you, they're like, hey, like, how do I know you? Or where do I know you from? Yeah. Yeah. Are you from here? Like, where, where how can I know you? And then it's the option is like, do I tell them that 
they don't know me or do I say maybe you might know me? So I don't really try to play like, no, no, like I, I don't know one. I don't recognize you. I'm sorry. Like, no, I, I think I know you. And then that's when I either say, okay, yeah, I was like a humble Bronco or I'll say, yeah, I was, I'm a student athlete here. And most of the time I'd say I'm a student athlete. They're like, oh, where did you play last year? And then that was when I would go into like, I'm a Bronco. And then they'd feel terrible and backtrack and yeah. like feel so sorry. You have like different range of motion. You have someone that just cry. You have someone that wants to hug you on someone that's shake your hand. You want someone that's like, I'm so sorry. And like tries to leave instantly. Yeah. And that was the hardest part because like, I like to be positive. I like to lift people's spirits. But when they were meeting me, I was actually diminishing their spirits. So that was the hard part. And it actually happened the whole first year. Um, everywhere I'd go, it'd be definitely different, different treatment or I'd begin lots of stairs. And it was a hard concept to kind of grapple with. But at the end of the day, everyone just meant well. Everyone that came up and asked me, they just wanted to support me in some capacity. And it's hard. How do you support someone that lost 16 people that I consider family? It's, yeah. it's not an easy concept, but it makes it hard um, for you to move forward. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And even like to add on top of that, I went, um, I would go to like a Leafs game and Toronto fans are, I'm not sure if you're familiar in Philly uh, with the Toronto fans are like, they're pretty passionate fans. And so lots of them, lots of them knew me too. So when I go to like a Maple Leafs game, I have lots of people stop me in the hallways. And so I really wouldn't be going out during intermissions. I just keep it low key in my seat. And that was about it. Yeah. That's the thing that's tough is you don't want that to be your identity. It's part of your DNA now, but it's not your identity. And like you said, you want to move forward and do positive things, not just because of that, but with that as well. Yeah. I imagine that's, it's a hard thing when everybody wants to go back to that time and mm -hmm. you want to move forward. And, and I think that's probably brings kind of brings us full circle here. And that, that's what the book does. The yeah. book inspires people and by telling your story and not just about this part of it, but the, before yeah. three years yeah. ago on April 6th and now after. Yeah, no, exactly. And you're right. And that's the whole idea was that I'm able to kind of set that side of myself down in a sense and answer all the questions that people always have asked. And then it's there. And if they want to see that section of my life and that part of my life, they can read the book. Or if they really, really want to like ask questions, I don't have nothing wrong against that. I'm cool with answering them. But I feel like it's a good way to kind of have me give tribute to the 16, give love to the situation, to say how I feel about everything, and to move forward in a new direction. So like I said, if I get sent to Cairo here, that'd be amazing. Um, it'd be a cool opportunity because then I'd be able to move forward and just a chiropractor route that I've never actually experienced before. I've never been without a sport, um, never been on without a team. So it's going to be difficult, but it's also something new and challenging that makes me grow as a person too. That's awesome. Hey, Kelly, when, the, when this whole pandemic's over, and I mean, I can't wait for it to be over, as I know you can't, and anybody listening to this, uh, you got to get down here to a game in Philly and hang out with these – the, the fans in Toronto, they're insane. They're kind of like Eagle fans here in Philly. Um, the Fire fans are crazy, not quite as crazy as that. But uh, you got to get down here and, uh, and and hang out with us and 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 what take in a game and and get the whole experience and, and really enjoy it. I'd love to. Yeah, I've, I've talked to the Clark family, and that sounds like a plan coming up here um, whenever this passes. So I talked I'm to Clark. He said he'd fly you down on on his private jet. <laughs> <laughs> throw out the plug okay that's cool yeah, yeah. 
I think his jet only goes to Florida to golf, but that's okay. <laughs> um, hey, man, I really appreciate you doing this. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm going to read the book, and I, I hope you have tons of success with it. So I hope uh, everything goes well. Stay well and healthy up there north of the border in Saskatoon, and, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on here. I'm seriously honored. It's been great to catch up with you and meet you and get to know you a bit better, too. So thanks for having me on here. And wish you the Flyers all the best, too, with this season. Thanks to Caleb Dahlgren for joining us on this episode of Flyers Daily. He is actually a, a Flyer fan. He's a diabetic, and he's connected with Bob Clark quite a bit. And uh, Great, great young man and very impressive, and I wish him nothing but the best. And um, I hope you'll all go out and, and purchase this book on Amazon or wherever you purchase books and uh, give it a read because it's he's a really inspiring young man, and uh, we appreciate him joining us here on this episode of Flyers Daily. Game tonight, Flyers-Islanders. We'll break it down tomorrow in another episode. Let's get a win. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you on tomorrow's Flyers Daily.